listeners, welcome again to My Life's Work podcast. For those of you who are new to the show, my name's Nathaniel. And I'm Sarah. Over the past couple episodes of My Life's Work podcast, we've been beginning to explore the question of what makes work meaningful. In our first episode, David Stute introduced us to the idea of finding meaning in work that is challenging and that pushes you to learn deeply. K.K. Otteson found meaning in work that made her feel alive and like she was doing what she was meant to do to make the world a better place. Nathaniel and I have been discussing whether a career path guided by finding work that is meaningful is reserved for those who have an economic safety net such that they don't have to think about work exclusively as a means to earn a living. In light of this week's inauguration, we wanted to share a clip with you of Vice President Kamala Harris speaking at the announcement of new appointees on their economic and jobs team. Her remarks help clarify our thinking about the value of all types of work. One of the fundamental values that the president-elect and I share is a belief in the dignity of work. We both understand that a job is so much more than just a paycheck. It's about dignity and respect. Joe learned that lesson from his father, and I learned it from my mother. My mother taught me, in her words and in her actions, that no matter how you earn a living, whether you're a caregiver or a truck driver, a grocery store clerk, or a small business owner, every job has inherent value and worth. We realize that for most adults, work is first and foremost a means to support oneself or one's family. The meaning of work does not need to come from the content of the work, but instead from the dignity of working hard, of caring for others, and of doing one's job well. We hope to continue this discussion in future episodes. But today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Cartland, an educator who has devoted her career to serving children and has been guided by the determination to spread the feelings she first had as a second grade student at PS 140 in Mrs. Meverack's classroom. My first grade teacher was a very nice woman, but she seemed to have a little bit of fear of the kids, quite honestly. And this is my truth. I lived in an all black neighborhood. Our school, the students were predominantly black, but the majority of our teachers were white. And I think for some of the teachers that was uncomfortable. And so I recall um, my kindergarten teacher actually was one of the few African-American female teachers I had in my entire educational experience. My first grade teacher was an older white woman and then Mrs. Meverack, also a white woman, but she demonstrated none of that fear that I talked about. She was in complete control of her classroom and not with fear and intimidation, but with the most loving and thoughtful and kind ways to help children feel welcome and a part of the room. She dealt with conflicts between us with conversation and dialogue, but she is a person who pushed you academically if she saw that you could do more. Um, She never let you kind of hang back and take the easy route. She was demanding about the quality of your work. If something wasn't neat, she asked you to write it over. If something wasn't clear, she asked you to explain. Mrs. Meverack made Dr. Cartlin feel smart, confident, and capable. And in turn, Dr. Cartlin wanted to make other kids feel the same. She was going to be a teacher. I just recall getting through that whole year and um, telling my mother, I want to do what Mrs. Meverack does. I want to be a teacher like her because she loves every kid and she makes every kid smart. 
While Dr. Cartland was fully convinced of what her future career was meant to be, the adults in her family were not so sure. Her parents, both in the medical profession, first tried to convince her to join the family trade, worried about the financial instability that would come with teaching. Don't you want to pursue something that might be a little more lucrative? Don't you want to do something kind of in the family legacy? And it had zero appeal. <laughs> just, just no appeal whatsoever. Dr. Cartland stood firm. At this early stage, her conviction about her career aspirations was based on her belief that teaching would best allow her to serve children. I thought that teaching was going to satisfy all of the all of the fire in the belly around working with kids. Initially, Dr. Cartland's high school counselor also questioned her career of choice, but Dr. Cartland soon convinced her of the steadfastness of her decision. The counselor became one of her greatest supports in achieving her goal to teach. And she helped me think about the courses that I needed to take in high school to get me ready for college. I recall when um, folks started visiting from colleges and universities in DC, which is where I wanted to come to. Uh, she started calling me down from my classroom anytime anyone was in the building to have me talk to the recruiters so that I could become familiar with schools in the D.C. area. This counselor's influence is further evident in Dr. Cartland's decision many years later to write her dissertation on the role of high school counselors in shaping young people's careers. After college, Dr. Cartland started her first teaching job at Stuart Hobson Middle School on Capitol Hill. As she had hoped, the work was meaningful, fulfilling, and impactful. My first teaching job was in a fifth grade classroom. And so I found children in fifth grade to be extremely curious. And that was really appealing to me because then I, I had to keep my wheels turning and figuring out new ways to generate fun things for them to do and keep education and keep learning exciting. And the fact that we're in Washington, D.C. provides a really unique learning opportunity. I also think the fact that you're telling children about things like inauguration or uh, the government and its processes, or uh, the National Archives, and then you can get in a bus and go to those places is tremendous. Learning happens in a number of different ways, and experiences are a huge part of that. And so D.C. is its own classroom. Dr. Cartland had found a job that melded with her mission. She was beginning to pass on that feeling to other children that Miss Meverack had given to her and her classmates. Inspired by her impact on the children in her classroom, she wanted to see if she could impact even more children on a larger scale. What I learned pretty quickly after becoming a teacher is that when you have a positive influence on a small group of children and you begin to see the fruits of the work that you've done manifest in the ways that children behave and the choices that they make, you want to keep doing that for more children. Excited by the idea of reaching more children through her work, Dr. Cartland earned a degree in educational administration and almost immediately became an assistant principal at Stuart Hobson and then principal of the Capitol Hill Cluster School. Your scope of influence keeps getting broader, your circle of influence keeps getting wider, and what I found is I enjoyed not only the teaching element of teaching, but I enjoyed the leadership element of teaching. I have never wanted to be fully separate from the children that I am impacting, right? So. As a teacher, you're in the classroom with children every day, and that's wonderful. When you get to be an administrator, you're at least in a school building, and you're still with kids in some shape or form. When you get to the point that you're in central office, when you are a school district administrator, that changes. And um, 
I have found myself seeking after other kinds of work that would allow me to touch what's happening for kids more directly. Dr. Cartland's career has evolved from the level of the classroom to school to school district, where she always continued her work to serve children. But Dr. Cartland also knew that there were different avenues through which she could spread the feeling of empowerment and competence that Mrs. Meverack gave her. Working within a traditional school system was not the only way she could achieve her mission. Dr. Cartland was driven to serve children, and her career circled that mission, but she eventually left a traditional school environment to support kids in different settings and in different ways. She's not only found work which she can positively impact children, she also finds places where she can grow personally and innovatively use her abilities. The thing that drives the picking is what do I bring to the table, right? What are my skill sets? What are my competencies? Does this fit into my wheelhouse, the stuff that I'm really good at? And if it does, then am I going to be able to grow myself and grow other people? Because what you don't want to do or what I haven't wanted to do is to step into any role where I feel like I'm just going to be kind of repeating the same thing or reliving the same experience just in a new space. I really want to be doing something that looks and feels different. Of course, I want to be well-tooled to do it. So you do bring your experiences and skill sets with you. But the thing that kind of drives that attraction is how am I going to be able to do that in a new way? How am I going to be able to do that with some innovation and with some panache? As a second grader, Dr. Harlan identified Mrs. Meverack as the sole source of her positive feelings that she had in her classroom. Now, she knows that there is an intricate, complex, and multi-layered web of influences that impact children and enable them to succeed. If I could wave a magic wand and fix one thing in schools, it would be to help educators understand there is no one thing to fix schools, right? I don't mean to sound contradictory, but one of the main lessons that I've learned across the course of this career is that every system is different. Every district is different. Every community is different. And the rapidity of the way change happens in our current world means we have to be nimble and thoughtful and make changes according to what a population needs. So while in Northeast DC right now, you might need a ton of financial resources to get schooling to look right for the children in that community. That may be completely different to what's needed in Southeast DC, where it may be about building infrastructure and technology updates to be able to provide the education that you need. So I would eliminate the thought in every person's head that you can do this single thing and you're gonna fix education. Education is about systems and relationships and collaborative effort to make things happen for kids. And so I'd wave my wand and I would do that. Dr. Cartland has brought her expertise to many parts of this web, whether in the difficult position of supporting the lowest performing schools in Rhode Island, even when that meant closing them for the benefit of the students, working at the Flamboyant Foundation to strengthen the partnership between parents and schools, or as the executive director at the Washington Nationals Youth Baseball Academy, a holistic after-school program that supports students in wards 7 and 8. This summer, under her leadership, the Youth Academy was able to pivot its programming towards what students needed most in that moment, meal distribution. This last year at the Academy was very interesting, of course, and when we shut down in March, we began to distribute hot meals each day. And between the months of March and September of this year, 
the academy staff distributed nearly 20,000 meals to residents of Ward 7 and Ward 8. And I feel really good about that because this has been a very difficult time for many people. Um, I like to use uh, an expression that I heard someone else uh, who was describing the pandemic where they stated that for some of us, this is a little bit of a rain shower. For some of us, it's a storm. And for some of us, it's a hurricane. And I think that in underserved communities, this health crisis has been a hurricane. She said that being able to adapt to serve these communities, to fit the new situation, like hot meal distribution or even keeping open the farmer's market, which offered discounted produce, gave her heart a sense that they were doing the right things. Today, Dr. Carlin continues her work to support children in feeling confident and smart in her new position with the North America Special Olympics. They're trying to grow um, the number of city schools that participate in what's called the Unified Champions Schools Program, where children who are identified with intellectual disabilities work with their neurotypical peers uh, on sports teams in their schools, on leadership in their schools, and on community and civic activity in their communities. There is limitless potential in every child, and Special Olympics is simply committed to figuring out ways to help members of neighborhoods and communities know that about a particular kind of child. They're working hard to bring attention to a segment of the population that is as talented, as smart, as knowledgeable as the rest in ways that keep them healthy and keep them connected to their peers in their schools and community organizations. So I'm very thankful to be working with this organization who recognizes that limitless potential in children. And I look forward to the successes that Special Olympics is going to see here in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country. Dr. Cartland has effectively found jobs where she can be impactful, and as a result, she's passionate about the work she did at each one. It's funny, as I have been talking through this, I find myself saying, oh, and that was a great job, and that was a great job, and that was a great <laughs> job for many of them, um, and, but, but all for very different reasons. She's thoughtful about when it is time to transition from one job that she loves to another. My personality is such that I feel like there's always more work to do, no matter where I've been. Um, there's always someone that can be trained more deeply in how to serve their team, someone that can be a more effective teacher. I always feel like there's more to do, so it's, it's often been tough. However, when I feel like I've done my best work in a particular role and I am aching to do more or aching to approach the work differently and the confines of the role won't allow me to do those new things. That's when it's time to say, all right, I want to do something else. And so um, I think about um, transitioning from working with Flamboyant, for example, where I really enjoyed the family engagement work into heading up the charter that I was recruited to lead and thinking, I can do this family engagement work with five campuses of kids. So there's this opportunity to kind of do more. And so I think that's, that's what drives me is how can I do more? How can I be more influential? How can I be more impactful? And that's what prompts me to look for that next thing. Our city is fortunate to have someone as dedicated to improving the lives of children as Dr. Cartland. And we feel so fortunate that she shared her life's work with us today.
In the last episode with K.K. Otteson, I referred to a jigsaw puzzle of questions that I should ask myself about particular potential career paths. The first idea that I added to this list was what is most meaningful to me in a job. Is it financial stability so I can explore other passions, or is it a job that makes me happy to go to work, or is it a job that has the most societal impact? From our talk with Dr. Cartland, the question that sticks out to me most, and the question I want to add to this list, is this. What's my ultimate goal? Not just my goal for my job, not just my goal for myself, not just my goal for the world, but what is my goal goal, above all else? Your goal is your values, your aspirations. Your goal is who you are, who you want to be, and who you will be. There's no doubt in my mind, after thinking about our conversation with Dr. Cartland, that to figure out my career, I need to figure out my overarching goal first. After mulling it over for some time, I would even argue that this idea doesn't just apply to our workspaces. This can be the community we immerse ourselves in, and we can bring our goal to fruition in those. I've heard of book clubs that exclusively discuss racial justice, or cooking groups that donate their food to those who need it most. Dr. Cartland's work in the Hill Center's Board of Directors is an excellent example of extending one's goal beyond just a job. She brought her education-minded goals for her community to one of the hearths of extracurricular and adult education on Capitol Hill. Hearing Dr. Cartland talk about how much her mission has shaped her career and lifestyle makes me think about what my own goal is. I imagine that, like a lot of other people, I want to make the world a better place. I mean, it seems obvious, right? And who wouldn't? But that's such an overwhelming thing to think about. I can't just go in and tell everyone to fix this and fix that. Issues are complicated, and there's no one in the world who knows the answer to all the problems. People specialize. People like Dr. Cartland, who found a connection with education and knew there were people to help, problems to solve, and work that she had the tool set to carry out. I'm deeply grateful to Dr. Cartland for the opportunity to discuss her fascinating career and for helping me start my own search for my goal. Dr. Cartland's description of Mrs. Mevrak and her impact got me thinking about the people who played a similar role in my life. One of these people for me is Gil Gallagher, another Capitol Hill resident, who was my sixth grade history teacher at the field school. He made me feel like my words mattered, that I had something to say, not just to my class, but also out in the world. He listened to me like I was a unique individual and encouraged me to chart my own path, both in my thinking and in my actions. One of the impacts from my stroke last year was that it became easy for all my focus to be on my deficiencies. One of my doctors at the National Rehab Hospital, Dr. Burton, played the role of helping me to rebuild my sense of identity that Gil had helped me to grow years earlier. In that moment, my prior identity as a student, a musician, a reader, and a determined and independent young woman felt broken. Dr. Burton saw and spoke to me in a way that made me feel like I was a whole person, not just a medical problem. During his nightly round, standing at the foot of my bed and truly listening to what I was saying, even if our conversation was not always about my stroke or my daily attempts to recover, he helped me learn that I was not just a summation of my abilities, interests, and accomplishments, but rather my worth was inherent in my very being. He told me that it was not in spite of what I had gone through that I can contribute to the world, but perhaps in part because of it. Both of these mentors made me feel like I had a unique and important role in the world. And just like Dr. Cartland's description of how Mrs. Meveract passed along that special feeling to every child in her classroom, the feeling that Dr. Burton and Gill emboldened me with was all the more powerful because I knew that it wasn't just reserved for me. It's how they treat all children. They both modeled how to interact with people in a way that profoundly acknowledges their individual worth. 
I hope that I can channel this in my own relationships with people in the future. I'm so grateful for the role that these two people have played in my life. Who is your Mrs. Meverack? Tell us about them. What were your memories of them? How did they make you feel? And how did it impact your life's work? Email us at mylifesworkpodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment for others to see on our website, mylifesworkpodcast.org. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of My Life's Work. Look out for our next episode at the end of February. Have a nice day.